Well, I have a question for you this morning, and it's a simple question. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Now, normally, when you hear that question asked in in circles of people that love and understand the Bible anyway, normally that question is asked, are you prepared for maybe your death and what's after? Or maybe are you prepared for the return of Jesus? And those are great questions to ask, but they're not the questions I'm asking you this morning. The question I'm asking you this morning is, are you prepared for something more immediate than that? Are you prepared for what God is going to do in the immediate future? So I want you to, if you remember back to your days in school, now for some of you, that is a long, long time ago. For some of you, you might be in the midst of schooling right now, but if, if you would remember back to that day sitting in class, and you might be sitting, sitting in class and you remember the teacher standing up there and announcing that it was time to do a group project. Now, this group project is usually greeted with two responses. One, Oh no, right? No, because you understand that group project means that most likely you're going to be the one doing all the work and everyone else is just going to slough off and it'll all be dropped in your lap. Some of you, however, think differently. Some of you love group project because you're, you love people. You love interacting with people. You enjoy that. But think, think back to that group project with me, if you would. And you think to that group project and, and imagine a scenario where in that class a group gets together. And imagine there's one person in the group that does all the work and the rest of the group just sloughs off. They chat, they talk, they laugh together. And, the, and uh, at the end of the day, the project gets turned in and most of the work has done, been done by one person. And the rest of the group sort of rides on the coattails of that one person. And uh, nothing is ever said. The teacher hands out the grade and everyone gets a good grade. Everyone's happy. However, what that group didn't know is later on in the week, there would be an individual project that completely rested upon the work they had done in the group project. They were given a task. Only one of that group was prepared for it. As a follower of Jesus, we have been given a task. And it's a kingdom mission. And I want to ask you today if you're prepared. Are you even aware that they're a mission? Or are you like the kid in the group project that's done nothing and relied on somebody else? Or are you aware that there is a mission and a task that's about to be handed out? Are you prepared? We're in the book of Acts, and really Acts is a, a piece of, su- it's a summary work. And uh, in, in many ways, the book of Acts is a summary of everything that happened to the early church that Luke, the author, writes down for us. And if we were to make a summary of the book of Acts, it would be simply this. The church is empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to do the kingdom work of God. That's the summary of the book of Acts. A good way to outline the book of Acts is simply, as I reminded you last week, from the book of uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when, God, when uh, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in three places. Jerusalem, that represents chapters 2 to 7. Judea and Samaria, that represents chapters 8 to 11 of the book of Acts. And then to the ends of the earth, that's the section we're at right now. We see the gospel and, and the kingdom work of the church going out, to the entire world. And last week we began this. So today, as we look in Acts chapter 13, I have really two questions for you. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for the mission? That's the first question I want you to think about. Are you prepared for the mission? The second question I want you to think about is are you prepared for opposition to that mission? Are you prepared for the mission? The first few verses of this passage, uh, I didn't have Pam read, but I want to talk about them real quickly here. The first few um, 
passages, verses of this passage, really help us ask this question, and we see preparation for the mission. Um, in verse 25 of the previous chapter, uh, Barnabas and Paul returned, to Jer- returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. If you remember, Paul and uh, Barnabas had been down there. The church at Antioch had taken a gift to the church at Jerusalem who was hungry and starving from the famine. Paul and Barnabas return, and they start preparing the church at Antioch for a greater mission. The leaders in the church of Antioch understood the deep implications of the gospel, and the leaders of the church of Antioch understood that this wasn't just a Jewish thing. In Antioch, they prepared for whatever instructions God gave them next, and they knew this was a big deal, and then it would require all of their lives, and they needed to be prepared. Now, Notice how they prepared for whatever God is going to do next. This is really important in the passage. We look at this and we see this in in chapter 1. There are certain ways that the church at Antioch prepared for the mission at hand. The first first thing I want you to notice is in uh, chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I want you to notice something here that you may not pick up at first glance. There is an incredible diversity here listed in this text. It's really interesting. These five people, at the Church of Antioch, it was primarily a Gentile church, and we see these primary teachers or prophets, these five of them. They included a Cyprian, so someone from the island of Cyprus, a black man, an African, an aristocrat, and a Jewish rabbi. I mean, talk about diversity in this church. Up until this point, up up until last week, we had seen that the church had been primarily a Jewish church, and all of a sudden, the church in Antioch is exploding with all different kinds of people. Now, diversity in our culture is a buzzword, and we, in our culture, we read that word diversity as don't offend anybody, right? But the gospel is truly diverse, and this was so unusual in the first century. People didn't value diversity, but the gospel does. The gospel values all peoples of the world. And this is what Paul is saying, or Luke is telling us, that the church did in Antioch. They valued it, and the church looked unusual. That means they got the implications of the gospel because Jesus is for the whole world, and the church reflected the whole world. So as they prepared for this mission, the church was diverse because they understood the mission of the gospel was diverse. Then they also worshipped. That's the second thing we're going to notice here in the text. They were, it was a diverse, but they also worshipped. Look at verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work. They, you understand, these leaders of the church at Antioch put God in his proper place. They took time to do this. You know, our busy schedules barely allow for this. Our busy schedules barely allow for this. But they took time. They immersed themselves in the Word. These guys were teachers and prophets of the Word of God. They fasted. They set aside their own desires. That's one of the interesting things about fasting, isn't it? It's hard for us to do in our culture because we're so inundated in our culture with grabbing on the latest cool thing, you know, the, la- the latest idea or, hey, our culture says, if you want it, do it. But the idea of fasting says, I'm going to set aside my desires so that all I have left is God and Him. And this is the beauty, beauty of fasting. And then they, they were simply, why they were fasting, they were listening for the voice of the Spirit. So these five leaders at the church of Antioch were preparing for the mission. You know, really, it's, it's interesting because 
at the center of what they were trying to do was this idea that they were trying to listen to the voice of God. As followers of Jesus, those who are, uh, who are followers of Jesus, we understand that listening to the Holy Spirit is essential to walking with Christ. One thing that we talk about a lot here at Waukee Community Church is this map of transformation. We just bring it, keep bringing it up bring, and bringing it up and bringing it up as this tool to say we want to be changed into the image of Christ. And if you were to look at this map of transformation here, it's, it's centered, uh, it, the, the movement of the map of transformation is the four steps on the outside. But I would remind you that the center, the power of the map of transformation is this simple idea that God's word, God's spirit, and God's people is what powers the transformation of me as a person. And, and what the, the church at Antioch understood, these leaders understood, is that they needed to be saturated in the word. And they were. They needed to be praying and listening for the voice of the spirit. And they needed to be together in community. And this is what we talk about so often here is this simple concept. In our culture, so many times we see people do rogue and crazy things because they say, well, God told me to do it. But they don't have anybody in their life that works as a check and balance. They're not saturated in the word of God reading, where does the word say this? The church of Antioch said, if we are going to prepare for the mission that God has for us, we have to be listening to God's word, we have to be listening to God's spirit, and we have to be together listening as God's people. And this was essential. It's a map to transformation. To be prepared for a mission, we have to be transformed. God needs to change us. And to be transformed, we need to stop and ask ourselves some really hard questions. First of all, we need to ask, am I preparing for the mission? And we need to connect with our identity in Christ. If we were to work ourselves, go back to that map for a second, Doug. If we were to go back and work through the outside of it, we say, am I preparing for a mission? We ask an honest question. And then the second thing we do is we say, but I need to connect with my identity in Christ, who I really am. I am a redeemed child of God. I am not my own. We need to invest to be prepared. And then we need to engage in the kingdom battle. Which one of us doesn't forget all of this stuff? (laughs) Don't. I mean, not many of us are so single-minded and focused that we never get off the tracks. I mean, you know, you guys know me, I talk about it all the time, I'm the king of distraction. You, know? you should see me on sermon writing day. You no, know, it's hilarious. I have to get out of my office because there's way too much going on there. And usually I find a quiet corner of a library somewhere and, and just try to focus. And, you know, but inevitable, inevitably I'm preparing and all of a sudden, you know, like an email pops up and then 20 minutes later I come back to writing a sermon or I get a, you know, a a notice about some trade the Cubs just made and it's like, I feel like, you know, a squirrel or whatever, just like, hey, where's the next thing? And I, I feel like the king of distraction. It's so easy to get off track. But the church at Antioch is single minded. They're saying we are on track to preparing for whatever God has for us next. You see, we need transformation. It's so easy to forget we're engaged in a kingdom battle. And we need transformation so that every minute is his. We need to listen. We need to say, what's next, God? Fasting is really a great way to do this. And the church did this in Antioch. If you've never fasted from anything, I would encourage you to. It doesn't have to be simply from food. or I mean, it can be anything. You can pick something to fast from to say, 
I tend to want this more than I want God, and I'm going to eliminate this for a period of time so that I can focus on needing only God to keep myself on the tracks, preparing for whatever he has for me next. And fasting is a great way to do this. The last thing you see that they did here in in Acts chapter 13, here in this preparation part, is is found in verse 3. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them off. Um, This is really interesting. The Spirit says, okay, while they're listening, while they're preparing, the Spirit says, okay, I've got some work for Paul and Barnabas, so set them aside. And so they lay their hands on them and send them off. And, and the Holy Spirit is directing them. There's a huge significance here to lay, the laying on of hands. Um, in the Old Testament, when uh, someone would take a sacrifice and put it on the altar, they were taking that sacrifice and they were saying, in, in essence, I'm offering up this animal as a replacement and a cause of, of my sin. This, in a, there's a great exchange going on here, temporarily at least, between this animal that I'm offering up and my sin. So I offer up this spotless animal, and, and a person who would bring an animal would place both hands on the animal before it was slaughtered. And they would place both hands on that animal as a way of saying, this animal is me. This animal is me. It, it is, I, I'm taking this animal and my sins, I'm identifying with this animal right now to cover my sins. Now, of course, we know the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus was that animal for us. Jesus was our sacrifice. He was our spotless lamb. He took our place and he was perfect and it was once for all. But when, when that person would lay that hands on the animal, there was an identification. So it's very interesting, that identification piece, when the early church sends Paul and Barnabas off, they lay their hands on them. Why? Because they're saying, God has a mission for you, and I am identifying with you in that mission. In other words, you are going, I am staying, but I'm still on mission. The work you do is the work I do. When we... uh, uh, two years ago when we sent Chad and Ashley off to Africa, we didn't just say, Chad and Ashley, great, good job, go ahead, way to go, sure glad you're doing it, not me. You know, we didn't do that. We laid hands on them and we prayed for them and we said, the work you're doing is our work. But we also told them, by the way, I'm identifying with the work, but just because you're the one going and I'm the one staying doesn't mean I'm on vacation. This is really important. The of five leaders in the church of Antioch, they sent two of them out, but the three that stayed behind didn't just go, hey, we're on vacation. No, they also stayed on mission. In other words, we're together in community. You're there, we're here, but we're all on mission together. This is essential to understanding this passage and understanding preparation for ministry. One of the biggest threats to the church today is that we both we forget that both those who go and those who stay are on mission together. Those who stay aren't on vacation. Those who don't go aren't the only ones on mission. They all listen. They all prepared. They are all owned by the good news of Jesus. But so often we view church as something we add on to please God, don't we? This, we just do. We just go, oh yeah, once a week or you know, a couple times a month at least, I'll go and I'll worship God on a Sunday morning and, and then that'll be my thing for God and the rest of the time is mine. And we forget to prepare for mission. We have to be focused. God owns every minute of our lives. Sometimes listening then means letting go. This passage always struck me, this little part. Verse, chapter 13, verse 3, the last part. 
They laid their hands on him. What did they do? They, they sent them off. These five teachers were instrumental to the growth of the church in Antioch, and they just sent off two-fifths of their leadership. I mean, I imagine the church that stayed behind was like, what? What's going on? Like, you, no, no, this is not cool. These, but we need all of these. We need all of these teachers. We need all of these leaders. What are we doing? But the church didn't cling to them. They didn't hold on. They let them go. This can be really hard. It's necessary for kingdom work. We've all run across parents that can't let their kids go. You know what I mean? And so, some of you guys are, would be like, I confess that's me. You know? I mean, it's hard. We love our kids, you know, and, and we raise them. And, and then at some point we say, go. We're sending you off. Go. Go be an adult, you know? And in some ways, that's what the church is struggling with here in Antioch, I'm sure, to saying, you know what? We've raised you up. Now go. That could not have been easy. My brother was telling me about one, uh, my brother leads short-term missions trips all over the world, and he was telling me about one uh, particular lady that was applying for a trip. She was at my age, she was in her 40s, and, uh, and she was applying to go on her trip, and her dad found out that she was going to Asia, and he had only heard bad things about Asia, and so he, her dad, tried to stop his an adult daughter from going on this trip, and she was like, no, dad, I'm an adult. God's calling me to go on this trip. I'm going to go. And he goes saying, no, you can't go. You can't go. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. I don't want you to go. I don't want you to go. Finally, he hired an attorney and tried to sue his daughter and to, st- to prevent her from going overseas. And of course, it was just thrown out. But it was like, you want to grab that dad and say, you got to let go. And that's sort of what the leaders in Antioch got intuitively. They got it. We got to let go at times. And that's hard. That's hard for us as a church to do, to let people go sometimes. Um, you know, Thomas and Julie Cackler are dear to our church, and Thomas and Julie have had such a uh, positive and good influence on who we are as a church. And then I remember years ago I said to Thomas, Thomas, I, I think that God might have his hand on you for full-time ministry someday. And I said, I don't know what that looks like, but I remember sitting down with him, and, and, uh, and he said, I, I think so too. God's I felt God leading him that way. And so Thomas went to, to enroll in seminary and he went through all that. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we sent Thomas off. And Thomas, uh, at first he thought he was going to end up in Grinnell, but now Thomas is in coming. And at some point in January, we're going to have like a dis- long distance commissioning service for him and Julie to say, go do the work at that church. Go do it. This is incredible. Go. That's hard. It's hard on me. It's hard on our leaders. It's hard on our church family to say, go. I mean, we don't, we don't have a keyboard player anymore. I mean, come on. And, you know, and it's like, it's hard. We've been raising people up. But this is what the church does. This is how I know God's got his hand and is working through this church is because we get it. We're sending people. We're saying we'll raise them up and we'll send them out. And that might be hard for us. The church in Antioch was prepared to be on mission. Now, we keep reading, and we ask this question of ourselves, are, are we prepared for the mission? Because if we are preparing for whatever God has in front of us, we need to understand that there's going to be opposition. And that's the second thing I have to say to you today. Not only are you prepared for a mission, but the second thing is, are you prepared for opposition to the mission? Now, by preparation here, you know, it's not like, hey, are you getting ready for opposition? This is exciting, you know, we can't wait to have problems and hardships and all that. No, I mean more of an awareness. Are you aware that if you are preparing for mission, there's going to be opposition 
to that mission. We do mission wherever we are. The church at Antioch had two, two left, three stayed. Wherever they are, they're all on mission together and they're all preparing for it. Now they need to know that there's going to be opposition when we're on mission. We see this, first of all, with Paul and Barnabas. The first place that Paul and Barnabas do is they set out and they go to Cyprus. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I had thrown a map up there and shown you Cyprus is an island off the coast of, uh, of Israel, off the coast of the, in the Mediterranean there. And uh, I suppose uh, the first place that Paul and Barnabas go is Cyprus. Now, you need to understand that the Jews at the time in Israel sort of viewed Cyprus like we view Hawaii. Like it was a nice vacation spot. You could hop on a boat and in a journey of a day or so, you could be at Cyprus and you could go on a sweet island vacation. So it tells me that as we get involved in missions work, Hawaii should always be the first stop for us. And so that, you know, that's clearly the pattern that's set here. But no, they viewed it this. Now, why would Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus first? They, get, they, they hop down from Antioch. It's about a day's journey to the coast. They get on a ship, and it's like 120 miles or something to Cyprus. It's not that far, uh, especially by ship. And they go to Cyprus. Why would they go to Cyprus? Well, we don't really know. Remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus, so it might have been a simple case of Barnabas saying, hey, I need to go home and grab my stuff from my mom's house. I don't know, you know. I forgot. Doug said he, he forgot his Xbox, and he needed his Xbox. You know, I don't know. But uh, he, he just, they went to Barnabas' home. This is their first stop. And they land in Cyprus, and we don't really know why, but this is where we see Paul's first missionary journey begin. And what we see in this passage is this is the last time that the word Saul is used for the Apostle Paul. And why is this? Why is this the last time Saul is used? Well, because Saul has started his personal mission to take the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. His Jewish name, Saul, was no longer helpful because the people he was going to be talking to didn't understand this. It was not helpful, but Paul was helpful. That was his Greek or his Roman name. It was helpful. It helps us remember that everything Paul is doing from here on out in the book of Acts is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, they get to this island, and they start on the east coast of the island. They travel about 90 miles across the island. They start with the synagogues, which is just keeping in line with this idea of keep, uh, taking the gospel to the Jews first. And when we come to the west coast, they run into serious opposition. Um, you need to understand here from the text, we, we run into this guy named Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsul, which of the island, that's kind of like a Roman governor. The Romans probably sent Sergius Paulus there to say, hey, by the way, this island is yours. You're in charge of it. Make sure you collect taxes and keep order and, you know, keep people on track. And so that was sort of his job. He was kind of like the governor. And he was very interested in the message of Jesus. So he sends for Paul and Barnabas because he hears they're on the island talking about Jesus. And he wants to know. Luke adds in the text that Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. I don't think this is because, you know, like that Sergius Paulus was interested in Jesus. Like, you know, like I would call anyone who's a Cubs fan a very intelligent person, right? It's not like that. It's that Sergius Paulus was very interested in understanding. He was intelligent and his mind could grab a hold of this. And this is where the opposition comes into play. As Paul and Barnabas are going across the island, they're, they're, they're aware, they've been summoned, they're going, and something gets in their way, a guy named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar doesn't mean like anti-Jesus. This isn't like the, the opponent of Jesus, although he is. But that's not what Bar means. Bar in Jewish thought simply means son of. 
So Bar-Jonah would be son of Jonah. You know, Bar-Jesus is son of Jesus. Now, this isn't that Jesus had an actual son. Jesus is a very common name in the time. So that's why Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, because they wanted to specify which Jesus. And this would be like, you know, us saying Joshua or something like that. Just Jesus is a common name, and, and Bar-Jesus is just the son of a guy named Jesus. He's on the island. He, his name also in Greek is Elymas, which means literally wizard or sorcerer. So he was a Jew who used magic and sorcery, by the way, which in Old Testament law was expressly prohibited. But this Jew used magic and sorcery to seemingly influence the future. He was under the influence of Satan, and Bar-Jesus could do crazy stuff. Like, that's why the proconsul liked him. He kind of had brought Bar-Jesus in as sort of uh, his local future fixer. You know, a guy who could sort of Im- seemingly impact the way the fate worked itself out. And he kind of liked this, so he kept this guy around. But when he got interested in the gospel, Satan throws his agent, Bar-Jesus, in the way. He uses the tricks of Satan to imitate the work of God and to stop the gospel. And the text says that Bar-Jesus keeps getting in the way. Paul and Barnabas go. They go to talk to the proconsul, and Bar-Jesus keeps getting in the way. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but Satan doesn't want a key Roman official believing in the gospel. There's the imperfect tense here in the text, which is just simply means a repetitive action. It's, it says Bar-Jesus got in the way, but it really what it means is Bar-Jesus kept getting in the way. Over and over and over, Satan kept throwing up roadblocks to the gospel going forward. And the gates of, and, and so what's happening here is there seems to be gates that are thrown up. Bar Jesus is trying to throw gates in the way of Paul and Barnabas. And I'm used, uh, I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And maybe you remember when I preached this passage years ago, I reminded you that gates of hell are not offensive weapons. These are defensive weapons, which means the gospel, the kingdom of God is going forward attacking the works of Satan. And so it should make sense to us that as we're going forward, Satan would throw up the gates and say, oh, no, 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 you're invading my territory. Get out. But what Jesus promised us is that they wouldn't stand up against the the gospel. And this is what happened on Cyprus. What does Bar-Jesus stand in the way of? We find out that he stands in the way of the right ways of the Lord. Look what Paul does. Paul confronts him directly. He looks straight at Elymas and he says, You're a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Luke Luke here is reminded of something he wrote in his first work, the Gospel of Luke. In his first work in John chapter 3, he talked of John the Baptist and he said, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. God was using John the Baptist to straighten the path of the Lord, to prepare the way for Jesus. Bar-Jesus is doing the exact opposite here. The word right ways gives us a glimpse into the kingdom work. As agents of God's kingdom, we are supposed to oppose those who are opposing the gospel. We are supposed to stand up to those who pervert the right ways of the Lord. So we as a church should be prepared individually and corporately for the mission that God has for us. Because kingdom work stands in opposition to the work of Satan. And the work of Satan stands in opposition to the kingdom work. 
There are all kinds of kingdom works that are thrown in front of us. Kingdom things. And we shouldn't be surprised when Satan raises the gates and says, no, I don't want that to happen. So when we stand up for children, releasing them from slavery, when we invest in people who are doing that, we're standing on the right way. When we help people who've been taken advantage of, we're on the side of the right. When we stand beside those who are self-destructive, we're on the side of the righteous one. When we say no to the slaughter of babies, we're on the side of the righteous one. When we speak truth to a culture of people who deny truth, we're making straight the paths of the Lord. And this is what Paul does when he confronts Elymas, when he confronts Bar-Jesus, and he says, uh-uh, no more. The work of Satan will not stand against the kingdom work of God. In commenting on this figure, Bar-Jesus, N.T. Wright says this, What Paul saw in Bar-Jesus was ugly indeed, though really not uncommon. There was a deep-rooted opposition to the truth and goodness, a heart-level commitment in him to deceit and villainy, and as a result, an implacable opposition to the good news about Jesus. Friends, we have to be prepared. If we are on mission, if we are preparing for mission, we have to know that there will be opposition, and we shouldn't be surprised. Satan will always stand against the right ways of the Lord. And if we are on mission to do kingdom work, so will we. There will always be opposition. Satan will always be throwing up the gates, and we will always say, no, the gates of hell will not stand. They will not prevail. Kent Hughes says it this way, and it's worth me reading this to you because he says it better than I could. He says, on this passage, he comments, there is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith. You'll never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue. You'll never be rejected. Never walk out on something immoral and offensive and you'll never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business. You'll not lose the trade of the not-so-honest people in business. Never reach out to the needy. You'll never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus. You'll never be subjected to dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontations with Satan. Seriously follow Jesus and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and the spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. Those who are prepared for the mission of the kingdom work of Christ should not be surprised when we find others standing in the way. We all have bar Jesuses in our lives. Because Satan isn't going to let go of this world. So, Bar Jesus here, as the story continues and as Paul confronts this, it's very interesting what happens. Bar Jesus goes blind. God uses Paul to do this to here. And, and of course, there's an irony here because it wasn't too many chapters ago that the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus and he experienced blindness. Bar-Jesus was powerful, but God is more powerful. And if you're serious about this Jesus thing, if you're serious about being absolutely convinced that the gospel is worth your every life, you should be prepared for opposition and it shouldn't surprise you. I love how this section of the passage ends. 
It says, immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. In other words, God wins. God is more powerful than Satan's most powerful opposition. And then look what happens. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Why? For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Isn't that amazing? He didn't get amazed because, wow, Paul just made someone go blind. That's crazy. I'll believe in Paul. No, no, no. He wasn't amazed at that. He was amazed at the teaching of the gospel. This is important because probably not a lot of people here in our room have caused a temporary blindness in someone. And it's important for us to recognize this, you know? Like you haven't gone, oh, you're in my way. Be blind. Like there's probably not a lot of us who have done that, right? But we can all understand the teaching of the gospel of Jesus. This simple idea that Jesus died in my place for my sins. This simple idea that he rose from the dead and he had victory over Satan. And this simple idea that we all get to be emissaries of the kingdom of God. This simple idea of the gospel, we get it and we've been transformed by it. And when others, it's not through crazy stuff. It's through seeing and hearing and knowing and understanding and being changed by the gospel of Jesus. This is, we're on kingdom mission together. And this is it. So are you prepared? I mean, are you just cruising through life going, oh yeah, I got to tick off my God check on the card and so i've did my god thing this week or are you being completely overwhelmed that and know that every moment of your day has been transformed by the gospel so that every day you wake up and go i have been forgiven and i am an agent of the kingdom no matter what i do no matter where i go this week i am prepared for whatever god is going to do next and i know it won't be easy because when we do the kingdom work of god opposition is always there and are you prepared are you surprised by that? Are you prepared? Do you know there's going to be opposition? Do you know that the gospel life is hard? That is a soul-searching, deep question. When was the last time you woke up and like the church leaders at Antioch said, God, I am preparing today for whatever you have next. I am worshiping you. I am praying. I'm fasting. I'm looking with kingdom eyes. And I don't care how hard it is. That's what I want to do. What do you have for me next? When we do that as a church, we're living for the kingdom and we're doing what God wants us to do. And that's exciting. It's exciting to look around for me and see people all over. People who are asking hard questions themselves at our church. People who in our family are saying, there is something more and I can't wait to see what God is next because I'm going to go and work tomorrow and there might be an opportunity plopped right in my lap tomorrow. I'm going to be in my neighborhood tomorrow. There's going to be an opportunity plopped right in my lap because God is a good God who loves to bring us into his kingdom work. And when there is opposition, the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Satan. I would leave you with that simple challenge today as we close. We'll leave you with a simple challenge. Are you preparing and are you preparing for opposition? Let's pray. God, we come to you. We're excited because we get that you, Jesus, have overcome Satan. That while in this world we experience hardship and opposition, you have overcome.
we worship you, we praise you, and we are excited to be part of overcoming. Would you use us this week as we prepare? Would you use us this week to be agents of your kingdom, standing up for what is right in a world of evil? We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.